In your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We began this walk through Paul's letter to the churches in and near Ephesus uh, in August of this year, and uh, we will conclude it today. So we're on the very last uh, handful of verses, and actually we're not going to spend very much time on these few verses. Um, It's Paul's sort of uh, final salutations or greetings uh, to the churches to whom he writes, explaining uh, how, uh, how, who, who he's sending and what he hopes to accomplish by their visit. Um, so we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at those verses, and then what I'd like to do is just basically preach the book of Ephesians in one message. Um, so we'll get one kind of overview. If the book of Ephesians were a sermon, it might be something like this. Um, And that's what we'll spend most of our time on this morning. But we're in Ephesians chapter 6. I will read for you verses 21 through 24. And then we'll talk briefly about uh, about those verses before we uh, get an overview of the whole uh, book. So if you have your Bible nearby, I hope you'll look along with me. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing... Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So again, this is simply the the closing of Paul's letter. It's a reminder that these uh, great sort of documents that we read in the New Testament are not merely sort of abstract theological treatises. They are indeed letters from individuals to other individuals or groups of individuals. And uh, so just as is the case with the book of Ephesians, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a particular group, or actually more likely some groups of people, these probably house churches that are meeting in and around uh, the city of Ephesus. And so he includes uh, some personal greeting here. Now, because the letter was intended for a a wider audience, it's what's called a circular letter, where it was uh, likely intended to sort of travel from church to church and be read to these different groups, it is light on, uh, on personal, relational Um, uh, greetings. Some of Paul's letters uh, have a very personal ring to them where he names individuals and says, give blessings to, you know, so-and-so or the church that meets in Phoebe's house and things like that. And and this letter really doesn't contain anything quite so personal except for his mention and brief discussion of his co-laborer Tychicus. And so just a, a few words about uh, this man. He was a frequent a friend and partner of Paul in ministry. So he is mentioned in several other places in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, in Colossians 4, 7. Indeed, Colossians and Ephesians, we believe Paul wrote at the same, about the same time and in the same sort of uh, house arrest that he was under. And so Ephesians and Colossians have a lot of overlapping uh, material and the this section about Tychicus is almost verbatim, very very similar in Colossians chapter four. He's mentioned in Second Timothy four twelve, and in that letter, of course, Paul is writing to one man as sort of a ministry a protege of his that he's uh, left uh, in Ephesus to pastor a church, and uh, and and he mentions uh, Tychicus to him there and his plans to send him somewhere else. 
And he's mentioned again in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, another one of those personal letters from Paul to one of his uh, sort of ministry uh, protégés. So Tychicus uh, has several places where he emerges uh, as, uh, as, a, as a consistent and important a partner of the Apostle Paul uh, in his ministry. Uh, Tychicus most likely carries this letter. So when he says, uh, I am sending Tychicus to you, um, my, my friend Tychicus will tell you how I'm doing. Uh, it's likely that Tychicus indeed took this letter from Paul and journeyed to Ephesus and was the one who brought this uh, letter around to the different house churches and visited with them. And so he carries this letter uh, to the churches in Ephesus and reports to them about Paul's ministry. Because remember, Paul isn't on Facebook, you know, hey guys, just got arrested, pray for me, it's all going to be good, right? The only way that they have to communicate is by messengers, like by actually sending people to and from with a report face to face, and by letters. And so Paul made uh, ample use of both of those, uh, uh, of those tools. And in this case, Tychicus comes with this letter and with reports to them about how Paul is doing. And of course, he would tell them that he's been imprisoned uh, and that he is writing, he has written this letter to them from uh, this a position of, of arrest, right? Uh, he's under house arrest. And yet, just as Paul says, uh, pray that this would further the gospel. And, and he, he sort of takes a, a certain kind of delight in being a, an ambassador in chains, a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, certainly the, the people of Ephesus would have been concerned for him, but also rejoicing that the gospel uh, is advancing even in such uh, situations. I find it interesting here just to think of uh, when, when you consider the sort of personal nature of these communications and, and that, that this man, Tychicus, we don't know very much about him, but he does seem throughout Paul's life and ministry to be a, a, a consistent presence. And I find it in, interesting just to think about the importance of partnerships in the gospel, the importance of uh, friendships and co-laborers in uh, the ministry. Uh, Paul labored with a team around him. Of course, there were other men uh, and some women that he mentions uh, in different of his letters, and we see in the book of Acts that he travels with uh, with some different people. But he always has a team of people that are sort of a part of the, the ministry, as they're traveling together and doing uh, preaching and church planting together, um, and as these congregations, as they start a church and then move on, th there's a sense of partnership with those churches, and he continues to write back to them and try to visit them and things like that. If Paul needed a team, the greatest sort of pioneering missionary uh, in all of history, if Paul needed a team around him, so do you, so do I. We need to consider ministry and mission as partnership activities. We need to encourage each other, support each other. We need brothers and sisters who will stand with us in those efforts and do the work with us. Help uh, bear the load of ministry is the way that I've often said that. And so just a note, a personal note there about the importance of partnerships in, in ministry. He calls them his beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. So clearly he holds Tychicus in high regard, trusts him implicitly to carry this letter and to deliver the news. And then the book closes, the letter closes with a, a, a benediction where he, he prays blessing upon the readers and the hearers of this letter. Peace be to 
the brothers. And of course, the brothers uh, is a term, first of all, denoting uh, our fellowship in Christ, that we are joint, uh, we are all fellow adopted sons uh, and daughters of God. And it would include men and women. So brothers and sisters. Often in the, in the ESV text, when it says brothers, there's usually a little footnote that says brothers and sisters, right? This is an all-inclusive sort of term saying the the family, right? Peace be to the family, right? All those who are in Christ. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he prays for peace and love with faith. I think the love that accompanies faith in Christ and grace. These are the the things that he is uh, asking God to confer upon uh, the the readers of this letter. And these really have been the themes of Ephesians, right? These have been the the things, the the, the virtues and the truths that Paul has repeatedly called uh, the attention of his readers uh, to see. Christ himself has become our peace, he told us back in chapter 2. He's poured his love and mercy on us through his death on the cross. He prayed uh, that we would come to know the the height and the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, He's granted faith to our hearts to believe in the gospel. And he's raised us to new life by his grace. Like this is the this is the story of the gospel as he's sort of unfolded it, uh, particularly in those first three chapters of Ephesians. And here he simply sort of consolidates those themes into a prayer of blessing, that God would indeed uh, bring the experiences of peace and love and grace uh, to the people of God. He concludes the letter by praying for his readers to experience the very life-shaping, eternity-changing realities that he's expounded so poignantly throughout these chapters. And he prays this blessing upon all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So who are the peace and the love and the grace for? They're for those who love the Lord Jesus, with an incorruptible love. That is a love that isn't fading and deteriorating and falling apart over time, but a love that, that grows, a love that, that is kindled afresh day by day. Let me ask you plainly, do you love Jesus Christ? Do you find in your heart a growing affection and esteem for the Lord Jesus as a person? This is at the very heart and center of what it means to know and follow Jesus. It's to love him. To know him is to love him. To experience his love in our lives and to return our own admiration and worship and love to him. And these blessings of peace and love and grace from God belong to all those who love him. In return, And of course, we know, as John told us in, in one of his letters late in the New Testament, that we love because he first loved us. So our love is merely a response to the grace of God and the love of God in our lives. But we need to, to pray that the Lord would stir that kind of love and affection for Jesus in our own hearts and encourage each other in that direction. Do you love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible?
Well, that's all I'm going to say about verses 21 through 24, because I really like to spend the rest of our time looking at the letter as a whole. And if I were to boil the letter of Ephesians down into uh, three phrases, each of which will be a point uh, of the, the message from here on out, it would be essentially this. Because you have been united to Christ by faith, you have been resurrected with him to new life. Therefore, live his resurrected life by the Spirit's power. That's the message of Ephesians. Because you've been united to Christ by faith, you have been raised to new life with him. Therefore, live his resurrected life by the Spirit's power. And I think the letter is really even organized uh, structurally around those three ideas. There's a great amount about the, about the doctrine of union with Christ uh, from the start of the letter, packed into chapter 1, although it occurs throughout. And, and then the first three chapters are about the resurrected life that Christians have in Christ. And then the last three chapters are about how we live out that resurrected life in our own uh, communities and churches and families and lives. So let's take those one at a time and, and get a sense of what the book of Ephesians is telling God's people. Number one, you have been united to Christ by faith. You have been united to Christ by faith. The great theologian John Murray said, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Everything that Christians believe about salvation, everything that we believe that God accomplished for his people in Christ hinges on the reality of union with Christ. It is that important of a doctrine. It is because you are united to Jesus Christ that all the great blessings of salvation are yours. Union with Christ is the spiritual mechanism, if you will, by which all the resources and benefits of Christ's life and power are applied to your life. It is your union with Christ that makes all of his blessings yours. So when he says in chapter 1, verse 3, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, those blessings come to us because we are united to Christ. Let's do a quick overview here of union with Christ. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the sort of opening paragraph of this letter is just a rich and dense celebration of the grace of God that is imparted to us because of our union with Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. How do we get spiritual blessings? Because we're in Christ. We're, we're united to Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even God's uh, choice of sinners to save and bring to himself was in Christ, in reference to our union with Christ. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption in the beloved, in Christ, the, the beloved one. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's the, 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 the blessings and benefits of forgiveness and of redemption come in Christ, in, uh, through our union with Christ. 
Verse 10 speaks of God's plan to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So the global cosmic plan of God to redeem all the world and usher in his new humanity, in his new earth and new Jerusalem, all of that hinges upon union with Christ. He's summing all things up, bringing all things to their full conclusion in Christ. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. So the inheritance of this future kingdom and fullness of blessing and fullness of joy comes to us in Christ because of our union with him. Verse 13, in Christ, in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit becomes to us a a guarantee of that inheritance, and he guarantees it by uniting us to Jesus Christ. In a sense, that's what the sealing of the Holy Spirit is. It's a, a plunging of our life into Christ's. We are united to Christ and thereby are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So this first paragraph in Ephesians is littered with these references to our being in Christ and Christ being in us. Elsewhere in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 6, we're told that God raised us up with him, that is with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Thereby, just as Jesus himself was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of God, seated, we are seated there with him. We are in Christ in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Christ created in himself one new man in place of the two. They're speaking about the Jew and Gentile uh, division that Christ obliterated by bringing them together in himself, by himself becoming our peace. So in Christ that the church is created, that the creation of the church is a function of this union with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 22, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Even the growth of the church and the maturing of the church is, uh, is accomplished through our union with Christ. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12. In him we have boldness and access with confidence. Why do we have boldness and access to God? Why can we go to him directly and not appeal to him through some priest or, or human mediator? Because we're in Christ. We're united to him. Chapter 3, verse 17, Paul prays that the believer's experience of Christ's love and fullness would grow in this way, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's union with Christ. He prays that we would experience the love of Christ in fuller measure. How do we experience that? By Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Friends, we are united to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The most fundamental reality of Christian identity and conduct is this. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That is what this doctrine means. 
And that is what Paul takes pains to illustrate and demonstrate and show us throughout this letter. I only gave you some of the references to it. It's all over the place. If you read with that lens of in Christ, in him, in the beloved, you will find it everywhere. Because all of the spiritual blessings of salvation flow to us through this union with Christ. The way I've said it throughout this this series, and and I've come to, to say it, is this. Union with Christ means that through faith, God has connected you to Jesus in such a way that his work is your work. His life is your life. His standing is your standing. His resources are your resources. His future is your future. This is what it means to be united to Christ. It means what his is ours. Praise God for his amazing grace. May we live in increasing awareness of this astounding reality and find ourselves growing more confident and at peace in our relationship with God because we are thus united to Christ. So that's the first point that I think Ephesians wants us to see, but it's a, it's a conditional, not a condition, but it's the, the next reality is contingent upon this reality. Because you're united to Christ by faith, you have been resurrected with Christ. So the fundamental re- truth of Ephesians 1 through 3, the point that Paul drives home and unfolds and expounds for us is that we have been raised to new life with Christ. The reason we've been raised or the mechanism by which we've been raised is that union with Christ. We're we're connected to him. That is the shape of this resurrected life. But here it is. You have been raised to new life with Christ. That's what chapters 1 through 3 are all about. Look at it just briefly in these uh, first three chapters. Chapter 1, God planned your redemption from eternity past. He chose us in him, verse 4, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God planned for our salvation, for our redemption, before we even lived, before the world had even yet been created. He foresaw the world as fallen and he planned for its redemption in Christ. That's what chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 tell us all about. Chapter 2 tells us that God has raised us from the dead by his grace. Chapter 2 begins with a very unflattering picture of sinful humanity. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Human beings in their fallen state are a disastrous, hopeless mess. 
That is the situation that we are in until God does something miraculous, something supernatural to bring spiritual corpses to life. And that is what he has done in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2, or verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is the gospel. This is what God has done for sinners. He's raised them to life. He has, in Christ, given them new and eternal life. We've been raised from the dead by his grace. The second part of chapter 2, and really down through chapter 3, all of chapter 3, has to do with, with the church, the creation of the church. Namely, God has placed you into a new family. Part of this resurrected life with Christ is that we're part of a new people. We've been uh, united to Christ, and we've been uh, united to one another as brothers and sisters, as fellow adopted children of God. And so he speaks at great length and beauty about how God, how Christ has brought near those who were far off and how Christ has brought together those who uh, hated each other and, and were different from each other and, and killed the hostility through the cross. And so he's brought us together into one new family and he continues expounding that through chapter 3, showing us that even uh, the, the spiritual powers in the heavenly places tremble at the wisdom of God that's made manifest by the church. This creation of one new people by Christ killing the hostility and uniting them to one another shows and makes an announcement to Satan and all of his kingdom. God is on the move. God is going to win, right? The church of Jesus Christ is itself a fearful reality to Satan and his kingdom. God has placed you into a new family. And then he ends chapter 3 with this beautiful prayer that we would be strengthened in our spirit by the Holy Spirit in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And then he concludes this section with what we've used as our sort of concluding words or benediction each uh, service throughout this series in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. It's the way that he's going to do these abundant, surpassing, wonderful things in and through our lives is that the very resurrection power of Christ is at work in us. We have been raised to new life with Christ and his resurrection power is in us. We have access to the strength and power of his resources because the Spirit of God 
dwells in us. You have been resurrected with Christ to new life. That's what chapters 1 through 3 are all about. The proper response to that is praise God, praise God. We have been brought to new life. Those who were dead have been made alive. Those who were enemies of God have been made his friends. Those who were far off have been brought near, adopted as his own sons and daughters. Those who were destined for wrath and destruction have instead become the recipients of his immense kindness and mercy and love and blessing in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. You have been resurrected with Christ to new life. Therefore, and here's what chapters 4 through 6 are all about, live Christ's resurrected life by the Spirit's power. That's the exhortation that comes in the form of a series of exhortations through chapters 4 through 6. The central uh, idea being uh, promoted here is this. You are, as the resurrected people of God, you are to live resurrection life. Live it out. Don't just say, this is the gospel that I believe. I've been brought to spiritual life by Christ and have been united to him. And that's so great that I'm going to sit on my couch and just enjoy it. There's a call to action. There's a life that we're to live. There's a work that we're to do. There's a community that we're to be a part of. There's a a God that we must glorify and display to the world around us. We should live Christ's resurrected life. One of the ways that this is summarized best in another place is by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life we are called to live is the life of Christ. It's his resurrection power and resurrection life flowing out through us. This is the basic definition of Christian living. It's not... Do your best to be a good Christian. It's live out the resurrection life of Jesus Christ through your own. That's really what Christian life is all about. I had a Sunday school teacher in Houston who used to always say, the Christian life isn't hard, it's impossible. And that's why you need Jesus to live it for you. So he always emphasized the the sort of indwelling life of the Spirit and and the life of Christ uh, being uh, lived out through us. And I think that's a good way to think about this. We need, in order to live faithful, godly lives that bear the character and the shape of that chapters 1 through 3 resurrected life of Christ, we need His power. We need the Spirit at work in us to cultivate and to bring these things out. So in chapters 4 through 6, he gives uh, some sort of spheres of life where, where this resurrection life of Christ should play out. Uh, the first of those spheres is a Christ's life in your church. Chapter 4, um, he, he speaks about what this resurrected life of Christ will look like in a church community. Chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 are all about unity. Right, the, the oneness of the 
people of God. He calls us to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on this string of ones. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the oneness of the people of God, the unity of the people of God, in that we're united to the same Christ, indwelt by the same Spirit, therefore we ought to be moving in the same direction. We ought to be living toward one another. The, the, the resurrected life of Christ should express itself in the unity of the church. Where there are divisions and dissensions and disruptions among any local church and among the broader church of Jesus Christ, it is an indication that we are not living the resurrected life of Christ. It's an indication that we're not allowing the Spirit's power to carry us toward himself and toward one another in unity. We've been walking by the flesh instead of by the Spirit. So divisions among the church should be a red flag to us. Something is wrong. We should be united to one another. Christ's life in your church uh, looks like maturing together. Verses 7 through 16 are all about, uh, about that experience as he talks about the giving of gifts and he's given uh, evangelists and uh, pastor teachers and uh, prophets and, and all these things uh, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the work of ministry is every member of the church caring for one another, teaching one another, discipling one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. This, this is the the every member ministry of the church that expresses the unity of the church and builds the church up to maturity. Verse 16, when each part is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. So the life of Christ in our church will look like unity and it will look like maturing. We should be growing. We should be gaining strength and, and victory over things that used to hang us up. And I'm talking here about community life, right? Things that maybe used to be snags in our church's life are things that we can navigate a little bit better now. That, that is what a part of what maturing looks like. We're growing toward Christ like this. And then uh, Christ's life in your church looks like charity. Unity, maturity, and charity. Verses 17 through 32 are all about uh, how we uh, live uh, toward one another. He calls us to speak the truth to one another and to, uh, to, to, to serve one another, not steal from each other. He calls us to, uh, to forgive each other, be patient and tender-hearted toward one another. These are, these are ways that Christ's life are lived out in the church as we love each other. And of course, we remember the words of Jesus in John 13, 35, that the world would know we're his disciples by the love that we have for one another. So Christ's life in our church will look like charity. It looks like love lived out. We should live out the life of Christ in our own personal holiness. He exhorts us through, uh, in chapter 5 uh, to, to live lives of godliness. 
where we are renouncing sins and desires of the flesh and we're cultivating a humility and, and, and godliness. He tells us in verse 8 of chapter 5 to walk as children of light. He tells us in verse 15 to look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So there's a, a carefulness and a discernment and a wisdom that should characterize the way that we live. That's the work of Christ in us. He tells us in verse 18 to be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, which is, the, which is a divination, but be filled with the Spirit. I think that has to do with whose control are we under. I think that's why he uses wine as an, as an analogy there. Don't be drunk with wine, because if you're drunk with wine, who's controlling you? The drink, right? Your inhibitions are loosed and you're sort of like doing what the wine in you is, is urging you to do. Whereas if we're filled with the Spirit, we're under the control of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We, we move in the direction that He calls us to go. So Christ's life should be lived out in our holiness, our personal holiness. Christ's resurrected life should be lived out in your homes. That's what chapters 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9 are all about, as he breaks down these sort of various subgroups and relationships within a church community and expresses how the gospel will shape how they live in those relationships. So he speaks uh, to, to wives and, and husbands. Wives should submit to the authority and leadership of their husbands. And husbands should lead their wives with generous, sacrificial love. He speaks to slaves and masters. We might translate that in our own day to, to those who are under authority and those who are in authority over others. Those who are under authority should follow and obey the, those in authority with, with humility and respect. Those who are in authority over others uh, should be gentle and, and, and treat the, those under their authority with, with dignity and, and, and care and, and seeking to cultivate good in them, right? These are how those in authority and under authority should, should live in the light of Christ's life within us. He speaks to, to children and their parents. Children, Christ's life in you looks like humble, faithful obedience to your parents. Parents, disciple your kids in the faith. Teach them to know and love Jesus. Display for them the character of Christ. Point them to the word of God. Preach to them the gospel. And then he gives a particular exhortation to fathers not to provoke their children to anger. Right? Be aware of the, the pitfalls, the ditches that you're likely to, to step off into and carefully lead and cultivate and teach your children. And so these household relationships are to be lived out in the light of the gospel. Namely, the life of Christ within us should express itself in these relationships through submission and leadership and respect and dignity and obedience and care and the like. And then the final avenue that he expresses that the life, the resurrected life of Christ should be lived out is, is in the spiritual battle. Uh, that we are all engaged in 
whether you know it or not, whether you live aware of it or not, you have been given armor and weapons and you've been thrust into the battle and Satan and his demons are uh, seeking to throw you off track and seeking to devour you. We've talked at great length about that over uh, three separate sermons, so I'm not going to uh, expand on that very much right now, but the life of Christ in us is what empowers us and enables us to fight against the kingdom of Satan and to lead or to follow our Lord Jesus as he leads the advance of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. This is all an expression of the resurrected life of Christ within us. You've been united to Christ by faith. What's his is yours. Therefore, by, or by virtue of that union with Christ, you've been resurrected to new life with him. He's given you new life. He's given you every spiritual resource and every spiritual blessing that you could imagine. And he's lavished it upon you by sheer grace in Jesus Christ. And because that is true, because the resurrected life of Christ is within you, live it out. As the people of God, live out the resurrected life of Jesus in your church, in your own personal holiness, in your households and relationships, and in the spiritual battle that we are fighting every day. This is the message of Ephesians in a nutshell. You've been united to Christ. You've been raised to new life in Christ. Therefore, live out Christ's resurrected life. The only way that any of this is possible is by the Spirit's power. You can't drum up personal holiness. I'm going to make myself holy. It's not going to happen. You can't just drum it up. You can't will yourself forcefully enough to, to love, sacrifice, honor, and serve your neighbor. You can't New Year's resolution your way into effectively doing battle with Satan and his demons. This is all the life of Jesus Christ, triumphant over death, cultivated in and lived through you by the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, to the one who repents of his sins and turns to Jesus Christ in simple trust, he provides all of this freely and generously. The soul that is leaning upon Jesus for peace with God, for joy in community, and for strength in life's daily battles will find in him every spiritual blessing is already theirs. Brothers and sisters, let's live like it. Let me pray.